Let's get a running start into chapter two, because I think following on the tail end of the story we looked at last week, we find an interesting command that Jesus gave this leper, and the command that Jesus gave the leper and the leper's reaction to that command really end up providing us some context to the story we're going to be looking at in chapter 2. So we're going to get a running head start. We're going to address just a few points to set up some context, and then we'll dive into chapter 2. As we examined last week, probably following at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, context given to us by Matthew's account, verse 40, we're told that a leper came to Jesus imploring Jesus, kneeling down before Jesus, probably prostrate on the ground. And he's saying to Jesus constantly, continuously, repetitively, over and over and over, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Never doubting Jesus' ability, but rather doubting his willingness. Leprosy was viewed as the finger of God. It was judgment. It was viewed as only being placed upon a person who really deserved it. And so this leper dealing with guilt, dealing with condemnation, dealing dealing with all of these things based upon his disease, and we know this disease being a picture of sin, comes not asking whether Jesus has the authority or whether Jesus has the power, but whether Jesus would be willing. And oh, isn't it often that our sin keeps us from the very Christ that wants to deal with it, that Jesus is willing that Jesus never runs from us, but rather we run from Jesus. And he's there waiting for us to reach the point of desperation where we come and we fall at his feet. Jesus, are you willing? Can you cleanse me? And we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion and he stretched out his hand and he touched the man. He identified the man. He connected to the man. We're told that he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as Jesus had spoken, immediately we're told the leprosy left the man and he was cleansed, a full restoration. But Jesus strictly warned the man. And the language used here is that this wasn't a suggestion, but rather this was a command. That Jesus was strict in his warning that this man go away and not tell anyone. But Jesus says, see that you Don't say anything to anyone. Go your way. Show yourself instead to the priest. Offer uh, cleansing for those things which Moses had commanded. Leviticus 14, we addressed all of these things last week. That these things, the fact that there is a man, a prophet in Israel healing lepers, and this has never happened before, this should be a testimony to the priest. And as we addressed, Caiaphas, the very priest that would later on illegally and unjustly commend and command Jesus to death, that that very priest would have to perform a very ceremony towards the cleansing of this leper, a ceremony he has never performed, a ceremony that had never been performed in Israel in history, a ceremony and a chapter, I believe, was written specifically for Caiaphas to be a testimony so that he would be without excuse, that something unique, something powerful, that the Messiah had come, And so the man's obedient in doing that, but the first part of Jesus' command, that he go tell no one else, he doesn't fully obey because we're told in verse 45 that this leper, he goes, this offering is, is made on his behalf, he's declared to be cleansed by the priest, but he proclaimed it freely. And he spread the matter around so that, and we're given the consequence, that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city 
And the city, by context, is that of Capernaum, but was instead outside the city in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Now, Jesus performs a miracle that's radical. As mentioned, if you were to list your top 10 miracles of Jesus, the healing of the leper should make your top 10, but often wouldn't. It's not a miracle often discussed. Jesus does something that has never been done before. He does something that is strictly a pronouncement, should be a testimony that he's different than any other prophet that has ever come before him. This man goes, he presents himself, he's obedient in that regard. Jesus has told him not to tell anyone. And can he really in some ways blame the man? This leper who had been stricken with leprosy, Luke tells us that his leprosy was full advanced, that he was ravished and devastated by the disease itself. That I mean, how can you not tell someone? You were the walking dead and you've been made alive, right? As a matter of fact, we're often, if we take this as a picture of salvation and as the picture of Jesus cleansing us from our leprosy, our sin, doesn't Jesus give us the exact opposite command? I mean, isn't that typically the common command in scripture that when we come to Christ, when we come and we implore him, Lord, I'm, I'm unclean. Sin has devastated me. It's separated me from God. It's destroyed my relationships. Sin has ruined me. And I need you to cleanse me. And Jesus is like, I am willing to be cleansed. And he cleanses us. And in that moment, what are we told? Now go proclaim it from the mountaintops, right? That we're told to be a witness to the very miracle that Jesus performs in our heart. And so it seems kind of like counterintuitive for Jesus to give this leper this, this command. Because let's be honest, this would be great PR. I mean, Jesus... Hey, the fact that he's healing people is, is beginning to drum up some notoriety, some popularity. There's a buzz circulating. Jesus is already trending on Twitter at this point. It's undeniable. But then to heal a leper, that's never happened before. I mean, that, I mean, that is billboard material. Come see the man healing lepers. You think your pastor can do that? Come see what Jesus can do. I mean, this is awesome. The church where lepers are healed. Now, why would Jesus give him this command? If it would be great PR and also the fact that Jesus would tell everybody else for the rest of time that when he performs a miracle in your life, you're supposed to tell someone. Why? What's the purpose here? Now, the purpose we find demonstrated in the result. Because as a consequence of this man proclaiming what Jesus had done in his life freely, what ended up taking place? Jesus could no longer enter the city, but was instead, because of his popularity, forced out into deserted places. Now, I don't think it's the fact that there's a big crowd of people coming to Jesus that bothered Jesus but rather it was the motivation as to why this mob of people was coming to Jesus that bugged him. Now, we've already established, and Mark's already established in the first chapter, that Jesus could be known by a lot of different things. 
He could be known as a miracle worker. He could be known as a great order. He could be known as, as a great entertainer. He could be known by a lot of titles. But when it was all said and done, when you stripped away everything else, what would Jesus want on his name tag or his ministry profile as the number one emphasis? It would be preaching. Everywhere Jesus goes, we're told he enters the synagogue, he opens up God's word, and he preaches the word to the people. And then typically, miracles happen after Jesus has got done teaching the word because the miracles then substantiate the power of his word. If Jesus is preaching God's word, and then he turns around and with the same word, cause like people's limbs to grow back or lepers to be healed, his power of the miracle is being used to substantiate and illustrate the power of the word, the power of the teaching. Now what ends up happening as a result of this leper proclaiming it freely is that now there's a mob of people that's coming to Jesus, not because they're interested in hearing him preach the word, but instead now they're coming to Jesus because they wanna be wowed. They want uh, their eyes to be mesmerized. They're now approaching Jesus mainly by what they could get from Jesus rather than hearing what Jesus had to say. They're coming to see miracles. They're coming to be wowed. They're coming for entertainment, really, at this point. And this completely misses the whole point of what Jesus was here to do, and that was to preach the word. Now, yes, was there an entertainment factor to Jesus' ministry? No doubt. But what was his emphasis? His emphasis was the word and the experience produced from teaching the word. The problem, people were wanting to go for an experience without the word. Now, you see, I, this is why Calvary 316, we believe so strongly in teaching God's word and why we believe that the church today, the, the, the traditional, common, contemporary church today has missed the mark because we have seen, and you can show it statistically, that the place of preaching God's word has found itself becoming minimized in the corporate church that we instead focus more attention on the experience of worship or the wow factor of the light and the entertainment. Instead of the word and emphasizing the word, we're now instead focusing on hot button issues or politically correct topics or 12 points for personal betterment. You see, the problem today in the church is that people are coming to, to church not because they want to encounter Jesus and hear what he has to say to them, but they're instead wanting an experience. An experience. You know the problem, the, the, the ultimate flaw, there's two flaws to this particular church model. One, Jesus didn't incorporate it. If you want to model your ministry after Jesus, which I think is probably a pretty good person to model a ministry after. I, I don't know, I'm just, just throwing that out there. That you should emphasize preaching. Now, we've got great worship. And you know, I mean, even for our stripped-down warehouse, I mean, we've got lights and we've got some televisions, and I'm a young guy and I love modern technology. I get it. But when you strip away Calvary 316, when someone leaves Calvary 316 and they're asked, hey, how was church? And your reply, man, it was awesome. Well, why was it awesome? Oh, the worship man was just great. No, Sorry. I don't want that to be your first reaction, nor does Andy. 
but rather, man, God spoke to me this morning. That we opened up God's word and he communicated a message to me. The God of the universe, the same word that created all things out of nothing has spoken into my heart. And a transformation is occurring as a byproduct of that. Now, do we want the worship to be good? Yeah. Do we want things to be modern and relevant? No doubt. But if you strip away this ministry, we want to make sure that it's always the teaching of God's word. Why? Because that's where the power is. That's where the power is. Worship never transformed a life. Lights and technology never transformed the dead man into life. It's God's word. The second flaw to this particular model is that, and this in some ways might be a little controversial, if the church is going to try to compete with the world and entertainment, we have picked the wrong battle. Because guess what? I don't care how much money you throw at that aspect of your church's ministry, you can have the most state-of-the-art staging and electronics and lighting and multimedia to try to gin up the greatest experience that you could possibly have in a pew. And I promise you, you will get a better light show, better multimedia, better sound at a Dave Matthews Band concert. That's the truth. There's more money, there's more emphasis, there's actually just more talented people than what you will find in the modern church. We're trying to offer the world something the world actually offers better, and that's entertainment. But here's the deal. The church has something to offer that the world can't, and that's life. That's the transformative power of God's word. Oh, has the church erred? and de-emphasizing the very thing that Jesus emphasized. And so Jesus, he tells this leper, hey, let's just keep this on the down low. Let's keep this between you and me. You go to the priest. This will be a testimony to them. Go back to your family. Go back to your kids. Go back to your job. But let's just keep it on the DL. And you can't blame him. He goes and he tells everyone. But the byproduct is that Jesus is now forced into deserted areas. He can't go into the synagogue. He can't preach. People are coming for the wrong reason. And guess what Jesus does when a ministry becomes de-emphasized, when a ministry begins to major on minors and minoring on majors? You know what Jesus often does? He leaves. He leaves. Between verses 45, chapter 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, because we're told, and again, and that seems in some ways kind of like trivial words, but the, the idea Mark's presenting is that because of what's taken place at the end of chapter one, that Jesus has left. He just didn't go into deserted places. He left. He's like, I'm just going to let this die down. This is not what I want to be a part of. I'm out. Peace. Technically, if you begin to put this all together in a harmony of the Gospels, Jesus probably works his way from Capernaum back down this highway known as the Valley of the Doves to his hometown of Nazareth. And there's a whole story of Jesus entering the temple, I mean, not the temple, entering the synagogue, opening up the scrolls, turning to Isaiah, 
reading this incredible passage of scripture and then rolling it back up and saying, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. All of that probably takes place after this. Interesting, Jesus leaves Capernaum, goes home and does what? Goes to the synagogue, opens up scripture and begins to preach. And again, after things have died down, three months maybe or so have passed. We're told that Jesus entered Capernaum. He goes back to Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, in the original language, Mark's, the way he phrases this, he was in the house, he's indicating that this was the house, that duh, the house. Like if Jesus was going to be in Capernaum, obviously he would be in the house, that he didn't have to tell you what house it was because everyone would know up front what house this happened to be. Now, the only house that Mark has mentioned up until this point in Capernaum was the house of Simon Peter. Now, I think that's important for a bit of color because of what's going to now happen in Peter's house, which Peter was not a very go-with-the-flow kind of guy. He was one of those guys that he would shoot first, aim later. Um, He was very impulsive, not so go-with-the-flow. He would shoot off at the mouth. He was just kind of high-strung. Peter. So this is his house, Peter's house. And immediately after word begins to circulate that Jesus had come back to Nazareth, many people gathered together at Peter's house so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And what does Jesus do? Look at it. And he preached the word to them. He lets it die down. He comes back to Capernaum and he gets right back to keeping the main thing, the main thing. He preaches the word to them. So Jesus has a house, a home study, a house Bible study. He comes back to Peter, starts to teach. People, I mean, the buzz begins to circulate. Jesus is is teaching. And people begin to flock to Peter's house, not because they want to see a miracle. The word's not spreading that Jesus is on the hillside healing lepers, but that he's having a Bible study. And so people are flocking out because they want to hear what he has to say. Once again, things are now back in their appropriate order. And wow, what a Bible study this was. The church was packed for the right reason. They were packed because they wanted to hear God's word. The whole living room was filled to capacity. If the fire marshal could get to the house, he would have shut it all down, but he couldn't. Why? Because not only had they filled the doorways and surrounded the window entrances, but they were just piled into earshot of what Jesus was saying. They just wanted to hear. They didn't even need to see it. The overflow rooms, right? And so here they are. Jesus is teaching. It's a really special, a very cool scene. I mean, once again, this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. Then they. So our story begins to shift onto a new set of characters. They came to Jesus, bringing a paralytic who is being carried by four men. So they are four men. They're bringing a paralytic. And when they could not come near Jesus because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where Jesus was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, a couple quick observations. First, this paralytic, this man paralyzed. 
Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of details concerning him. However, Dr. Luke gives us a bit of medical information concerning this man's paralysis. Luke's account of this story seems to indicate, and you can make the case, that this man's paralysis was not based upon some accident. It wasn't as though he was a construction worker, there was a horrible fall off a ladder, and he ended up paralyzed from the neck down. It it wasn't as though that this man was born with this paralysis, because oftentimes Luke will tell you that this man was blind from birth, or he was lame from birth. This paralyzed man, Luke seems to indicate, was paralyzed because of an STD. It was because of more than likely syphilis, which was rampant during the first century. And because the disease had no cure or any real treatment, this man, because of his own sexual immorality and promiscuity, had contracted a disease that had left him completely lame, paralyzed. Now we see that with, we see that with the leper, it's a picture of sin and that everything that had happened in his life because of the leprosy, was a picture of sin. However, with this man and with the the disease that he's contracted by his own choices, okay, we find that sin has left him paralyzed. Paralyzed. He can't walk. He can't move. His life is miserable. Have you ever felt like sin has left you paralyzed? Paralyzed to find a way to deal with the very sin that's, you know, constricting you? Have you ever felt like like your walk with God because of sin comes to a screeching halt? I mean, have you ever sensed and felt the, the paralysis by conscious, knowing, rebellious sin? I know I have. I think if we're all honest, we all have to some degree. And so we can relate to this man in the sense that this man has made a horrible decision and it has left him paralyzed. Now, his four buddies, he's got four good friends. They understand why he's paralyzed. They understand that the whole dynamic at play here. They also hear that Jesus is back to Capernaum, that he's got this hot Bible study taking place, and they're hoping that they can take their lame friend, they can get him to Jesus, because Jesus can actually maybe deal with his lameness, deal with his paralysis, and so he can be restored. That's their whole intention. Now, please note that they don't like just suggest to the lame man hey man, you know, we hear Jesus is in town. You really ought to like um, hop in your little rascal and, and drive your way on over to Jesus. Like, I think that would be a good thing for you. Like, they don't, they don't say, you know, you know I, please don't be offended by this. Um, but you know, you're, you're pretty lame. And, uh, and we all see it. Like, you're pretty lame. And, and you know, maybe, maybe you want to go and, and, and maybe go to church with us? No. Oh, okay, No, these four, it seems as though from the the narration here that there's no like conversation that happens. That they just kind of go, these four friends, they're like, you're lame, you're paralyzed. Like, we're really not going to expect you to get yourself to Jesus. What's he going to do? Army crawl his way to Christ. Like, no, they're just going to pick him up, grab four uh, legs of his stretcher, and be on their way. I get the inclination, and this is maybe just me reading into the story a little further than I should, but just go with me for a moment, because I don't think this man wanted to go at all. 
Because he knows Jesus is a great teacher. He knows Jesus is a prophet. I'm sure he's heard the same things his four friends have heard. He knows that he's paralyzed, not by an accident, but by his own choices. He also knows that Jesus seems to have like incredible intuition with things and that Jesus, upon looking at him, will know that he's laying because of sin. And he just doesn't want to go there. In some ways, I see that this man has the same problem because of sin that the leper did. That the question was not whether Jesus would heal him, but whether Jesus would want to. I think he's like, if you're willing, I don't even think you're willing. I'm not going. But they don't give him the choice. And I can see the whole way on over to the house. This man's complaining. This man's pitching a fit. This is a bad idea, guys. I mean, they're, for all points and purposes, picking on a a handicapped man. I mean, they're taking him against his will to Jesus. And so they're making their way, and I can see as they approach Peter's house and they see this mob existing outside, that this, that this lame man, you know, he's there and he's just kind of looking up. He's like, told you, told you, bad idea, bad karma, man. Look, let's go, let's go home. And his four friends, to their credit, they're like, shut up. They're like, I mean, we've carried you this far, got no problems just leaving you here, but we're not carrying you back. Our intention on carrying you this far was so that Jesus would heal you and we didn't have to carry you anymore. And so we're here, we're getting you to Jesus somehow or another and give them, give them props, they get creative. I mean, it would be very easy for them to have gotten discouraged. Oh, the place is packed. Oh man, they don't have enough parking. Oh, it's, kind of, it's raining outside. I don't really wanna to go to church this morning. No, I mean, there, there's some determination. I just had a long weekend, maybe next week, man. No, they, they, they grab their friend, they go to the house, the house is packed. They're not discouraged, they're creative. We're determined. And so we're told that they take the lame man up onto the roof. Now, in the first century, very much like it is today, the way that the houses were built, they were built with branches and lots of thatch and mud. and They were pretty good structures, but as a result of the way that they were built, the roofs were often flat, didn't rain a lot, and were doubled as patio space. Sometimes even like gardens would be planted onto the roof because of the fact that there was mud and thatch and you could plant stuff and it grow and that actually hold things together. And so there was often stairs making their way up. And I can see the layman like, I don't see handicap access. This violates so many codes. There's not an elevator. Uh, I don't see a ramp. You're really going to carry me up these stairs? And they're like, shut up. And they're carrying him up the stairs. You know, they hike him up. They're carrying him up on top of the roof. And then they begin to like to dig. Now, did they bring shovels? Nope. Like they're tearing off pieces, like in a very rudimentary way, making a racket, digging a hole in Peter's roof. (laughs) Okay. Now think for a moment, you're on the other side of this. You've come to the Bible study, you're sitting there in Peter's living room, you're digging this Bible study, you got Peter on one side of the room, you got Mrs. Peter on the other side of the room, really upset that there are way too many people in her house, they haven't cleaned off their shoes, she feels like she's been a bad hostess, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the Bible study, you just get this boom. And you're like, what in the world was that? Because the whole house kind of shook a little bit. Little particles of dust kind of, you know, come filtering down from the ceiling. Boom. Again and again, it becomes repetitive. Now, I think Jesus knows what's going on the whole time. So he's just teaching. He's just going with the flow. And I think Jesus is probably focusing on Peter because Peter's freaking out. Like Peter's beading sweat. He's looking at his wife who's like steam coming out of her ears 
because they either have a really bad rat problem in the attic or someone's digging through their ceiling, neither of which are a very good situation. And so repetitive knocking and booming and knocking and booming. And then all of a sudden, this little beam of light, right, just comes like coming out of the ceiling and like right down onto the floor. Peter's trying to find a way to get out of the house. There's no way he can get out of the house. He's stuck. And then this little hole just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as these four men are digging up Peter's roof. Why? Because they're going to lower their friend down right there at at Jesus' feet. Now, okay, I'm back up on the roof. The whole time you got this lame man complaining pitching a fit. This is a bad idea. You guys are going to get arrested. This is just horrible. It's not worth it. On and on and on and on and on he might go. And do you think that they brought rope? No. I mean, really? You think they brought rope with them? Like, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and pre-plan that we're going to have to dig up the man's roof and lower him from the ceiling so he can get to Jesus. No, I can see that, you know, Maybe three friends are tearing up the roof and then there's the other buddy that's taking the thatch and he's kind of like weaving it into this like really horrible looking rope. And the whole time the lame man's like, you're not serious about this, right? You're not gonna really like look at that. That's thatch and mud and like that's not even, that's not even like you you didn't even buy that rope at Home Depot. Like I don't, this is not gonna end up very well. And at some point, if I'm one of his friends, I'm like, shut up, man. We're just going to lay you here and kick you off the side. Because really, what's the worst that can happen? You fall, break your neck, and you're paralyzed? I mean, really, in the, in the course of the whole thing, I mean, the man's already paralyzed. So what? The rope breaks. He falls. And I could just see him, like, hitting the ground and, like, just kind of laying there. And it's like, either he's going to heal you or he's not. But you're not, you're not walking anyway. And they lower this man down. And you can sense... That the, the air is thick, maybe it's the mud, but the air is thick with tension. What's going to happen here? What's going to take place? Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, it wasn't when Jesus saw the faith of the paralyzed man, but Jesus witnesses the faith of these four friends. These four friends, we'll get to that in a moment. He saw their faith And he said to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven you. I can see these four men peering down this hole with big grins. They looking at Peter. Peter's like, I'm going to kill you. And they're like, you're never going to catch us. You can't get out of the house. You know, this whole scene, the paralyzed man's laying there. And what did they bring the paralyzed man to see happen? They came because they wanted to see his legs start working again. Like they had intentions on the man walking away. And I can see that this paralyzed man, as he's laying there, Jesus looks at their faith, and then he looks at this man, and isn't it interesting what Jesus does? He says, son, which is the only time he ever uses the word, by the way. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks beyond his legs. He looks beyond his paralysis. He looks beyond anything physical. And he sees that what does this man need more than anything? 
This man needs forgiveness. Now, that, I think that that seems to substantiate my point that his paralysis was brought on by sin because Jesus knew exactly what the issue was, wasn't it? It was the man's sin. And I think in that moment, this man, it didn't matter anything else that happened. I think for this man, he's, he sensed a healing, a, a, a restoration. He sensed God's grace and his forgiveness. I think in that moment, this man had everything he needed, that he could die. He could die in his paralysis because he knew he would wake up in heaven fully restored. I think for this, this, this lame man, it was the most incredible thing, the most powerful words he had ever heard spoken. But I do think that for the four men up top, they're sitting there thinking, well, that's a curveball. Because we lowered him down. We had no intentions on pulling him back up. Like, what do you want to do now? I think that there's a bit of shock. E even within the room, I think that there's, there's some doubt here. There's, like, this is not what people were expecting to happen. To the point that we continue reading, that there were some scribes, they're sitting there, and they're reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's true. No one can. It just so happens that Jesus was God, so he could. But immediately, verse 8, Jesus, he perceived in his spirit what's going on in the room, what people are reasoning. And so he says to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? What's easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Now, please don't overlook the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. Because really, Jesus is affirming what everyone's thinking. You're thinking, cop out, like nice trick, Jesus. Yeah, all the pressure's on, all the eyes are on, everyone's expecting you as the son of God to heal this man of his paralysis. So he gets up, we see a miracle, and he leaves. But instead of dealing with his paralysis, instead of a miracle, instead of a healing, a physical healing, you instead, when the pressure was on, said to the man, your sins are forgiven. What's easier to say in the, in the moment? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. What's easier to say is your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no proof in that moment whether or not that actually happened. Because who can for, forgive sins but God? The only person that knows whether or not that guy's sins were actually forgiven is God. And he's going to find out when he stands before God after he dies whether or not it actually happened. You see, the truth of the matter is that in the moment, it was easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because there were no immediate visible results. I think the man knew, but nobody else did. You see, it would be much difficult, much more difficult to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Why? Because it would either happen immediately and that would validate things or it wouldn't happen. And then everyone's kind of like, oh, awkward. And they turn and they leave and Jesus' ministry ends. And so they're all reasoning like, Jesus, you just took the easy way out. That's what's going on here. And Jesus calls him on it. He affirms it. He says, I recognize this. I don't care because what's more important is the man's sins being forgiven. But, and check it out, that you may know that the son of man, that Jesus has power on earth to forgive sins in heaven. He says to the paralytic, 
I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately the man arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all. They were all amazed. They glorified God. They said, we've never seen anything like this. And no, had they. See, Jesus, what does he do? His word forgives this man of his biggest issue, and that was his sin. And then to validate to substantiate, to show them that his word had power to heal a person of their sins, to forgive sins. He showed that his word had power by doing something that our words can't. And that's causing someone lame and stricken with paralysis to get up, roll up their bed, and leave. Now, please note, that the miracle was done to substantiate and validate the power of God's word spiritually. Think about the whole flow here. Jesus is preaching. Radical things are happening in Capernaum. The leper runs his mouth. People are coming for the wrong reasons. Jesus splits. He comes back to do what? To preach the word. And then what does he do? He's preaching the word. This whole scene unfolds. This paralyzed man's laid down. Jesus forgives him of his sins. He deals with the real issue of the heart. And then he shows that there is power in his word to transform a life spiritually and physically by healing him. It all comes back to his word, doesn't it? The power of his word. But then check it out. And I have to point it out. I can't overlook it. God's word went forth. Lives were transformed. Sin was forgiven. Amazing things took place. And then what happened? They broke out in a worship service. They worshiped God because of what God had done in their midst through the teaching of his word. Understand that worship was a byproduct of an experience that someone has already had with his word. It's not the experience that we pursue, it is the experience that is produced from a life transformed by Jesus. People come to church because they want the experience of worship, but people should come to church because of an experience they've had with his word, and they want to glorify God because I've never seen anything. You see how this all unfolds? You see how this works? And they glorify God. They praise God in response to what Jesus had done, what he had said. Now, in conclusion, in conclusion, I have to come back to these four men. I have to come back to the four men because these four men went to extreme efforts, undeniable, extreme efforts to bring a friend that was stricken in paralysis by his own sin. They went to extreme efforts to bring their friend to Jesus because they believed that Jesus could heal him. They were not deterred or discouraged, but they took it as a responsibility to the point that Mark goes out of the way and says that before Jesus does anything with this man, 
that he saw the faith of the four men. Now, whether or not it was their faith that caused Jesus to heal the man, I don't think you can make that leap. But at the same time, their faith, it definitely moved Jesus to action, didn't it? Didn't it? I think so. You know, I'm sure that you have some friends. It might be a brother or a sister or a coworker or a neighbor, person on the ball team, whoever. But I'm sure we all have friends that are lost, that are stricken and paralyzed in their own sin. Why don't we just call them lame? <laughs> we all have friends that are lame. Are you just sitting back expecting them to find their own way to Jesus? Or are you taking a responsibility to get them here? To bring them? You know, so often when we feel a burden to reach out to a friend to bring them to Jesus, to bring them to church, to hear God's word, we often get deterred by the most simplistic of things. Raining. I got tired over the weekend. Like we could talk ourselves out of reaching out to our friends or witnessing to our friends with all kinds of excuses. But these four men, they weren't to be deterred because they loved their friend. They loved him. And they knew if they could just bring him, that Jesus knew what to do. And Jesus saw their faith and then did something. You know, I, I could be wrong here. But you know, I think if you go to the same kind of extreme efforts to bring your lame friends to church to hear Jesus speak, that Jesus will also notice your faith and he will take that into account. I think when Jesus reaches into the life of a kid and he does a transformative work in the life of maybe the prodigal son, Jesus always had in mind the faithful heart of the father. That Jesus observes not just the person being brought, but the person doing the bringing. Now, everyone has to make their own decision, no doubt. That's true. But at the same time, do you know someone that needs to encounter Jesus? I mean, be honest. I would say, yeah, we do. So the exhortation this morning, what I think Jesus is trying to communicate to us this morning, do you love them enough to do something about it? Don't overcomplicate it. I love Andrew and Scripture, Peter's brother. Andrew, we have no sermon ever recorded of Andrew giving. We have no miracle uh, recorded of Andrew performing. I mean, Andrew, when it comes to Scripture, is just your normal guy. Yes, he was an apostle, but at the same time, we don't have any record of him being a pastor. We don't have any record of really Andrew doing much, except for the two times, the two times Andrew is mentioned in Scripture. You know what Andrew's doing? Both times. He's bringing someone to Jesus. 
He's bringing someone to Jesus. You might not be able to preach some sermon. You might even feel like, like I don't even really know a whole lot about this book like I should. You might not perform some miracle or feel some great calling to do some great movement of, of the Spirit, but I think we all can maybe relate to Andrew and that we can all follow suit on the call of Andrew. Like, I think it's within all of our capacity and ability to bring someone to Jesus. To bring someone. And so this week, think for a moment. And this is not because the church is about numbers. It's not. Not at all. I hope we've proven that by now. If there's two people here, we're going to have an awesome Bible study. If there's a hundred people here, we're going to have an awesome Bible study. If there's more people that can fit in the building, we're going to have like three awesome Bible studies at just different times so everyone can participate. It doesn't matter. What matters is teaching the Word. But think for a moment what this room would look like next week if not only you came back, but you brought someone with you. Just one person. You just brought someone with you. And hopefully there are people that don't know the Lord. Because I promise as we continue our travels through the gospel of Mark, we are looking at Jesus. And not just necessarily his words, but mainly his actions. Knowing that actions speak so much louder than words. Hey, this week, pray. Lord, burden my heart with one person. And then reach out to them and use these four men as your encouragement to do so. So, Father, 